Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Fly on the Wall. You're talking to Aaron and Christian and Dustin. And we're all here in the geopolitics office after hours, bringing you the best podcast content available on the interwebs in the world. Welcome in the world. Welcome back. Yeah, we're really excited for episode two of Fly on the Wall in season two. It's going to be a good one. We're really excited to have you guys here. But in order to keep doing this podcast, we need two things from you. This is so simple. One, subscribe. Please subscribe on iTunes. And what's the second, Justin? Uh, subscribe to our mail list. Is that right? No, I was going to say share it with your friends. But yeah, you can well, also you subscribe. Should subscribe to our mail list, too, because you don't even have to go on social media to find our podcast. We will put it right in your email inbox. We're just trying to cut out as many steps as possible for you guys. But yeah, also follow us on social media. Wait, question. Uh, wouldn't it really be three things then? Because I need them to also listen to our podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, listen, don't listen. I mean, it's that's not a to task at, to listen at to this us. point. They're already listening, listen so that's fair. Okay, so today on the pod, we'll be talking to digital advertising guru and GMMB partner Anson Kay, who worked on both the Obama and uh, Clinton election campaigns as an outside digital consultant. So what that means is he was creating some awesome advertisements that ran on television, seen by millions of people. So he has some great insight into that less well-known uh, part of the political system. Yeah, if you guys have seen a campaign ad done from the Hillary campaign in 2016, Anson at least had a hand in it. That's a fair statement. Yeah, yeah. I think so. So we really get behind the scenes of that, which is really cool perspective. Yeah, fact check me. <laughs> okay, Martin O'Malley. <laughs> uh, so we're kicking off today with our Tweet of the Week. Oh, man. Okay, so I love this one. This is really exciting. So our Tweet of the Week comes from at the Today Show also known as The Today Show. Uh, And they tweeted a video clip um, of a young boy mowing the White House lawn. And here's the tweet. The White House has helped fulfill the wish of an 11-year-old boy who asked to mow the property's lawn. Adorable. Hashtag nine today. And it really was. The video is real cute. Although, when I was 11, the last thing I wanted to do was mow the lawn. That's my question. It's like... (laughs) Who, like... I used to find every excuse to get out of mowing the lawn. Why? But, like, of all the dreams you can have in the world. Mowing a lawn is such a weird one. It's like, okay, there was this one kid in my elementary school who always wanted to be a dentist. Yo, throw the at. No. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he listened? No, definitely not. <laughs> Which is why I'm... Yeah, but... Like why? Like you have you have to have bigger. You could dream to be president. You could dream to meet the president. You could even dream to like I don't know. Like I'd much rather like paint the White House, you know, rather what? than like mow the lawn. I mean, like at least that's like <laughs> sure. No, 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 that's stupid. No, I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but like, imagine like the permanence of painting the White House that's versus weird. the temporary nature of just cutting the. Lawn. You realize they repainted the Oval Office like two weeks ago. Yeah. Okay, but that like when was the last time it was renovated? Like at least eight years. Right? Fair. So fact check us. Fact, fact <laughs> we are, check us. We are real news. Good. Game of the week. Fact check us. All right. right. <laughs> uh okay, so our next little segment we're gonna be doing is what really grinds our gear. This is backed um, by popular demand. Fan yeah. favorite. You all love this, some would say. <laughs> so because the topic of today's podcast is consulting, we we sat down in this room a few minutes ago and we were deciding what is consulting. It's no one knows. No one knows. <laughs> but at in fundamental level it's just asking for help justin we're gonna put you up first what really grinds your gears about asking for help what grinds my gears about asking for help i think honestly the biggest issue is just that it's a pride point like i mean let's be real no one likes feeling like you need to ask for help especially a you know very confident college student who thinks they know where they're going in the world and is that you yeah absolutely it's me (laughs) So asking for help means that I'm not perfect and I don't I don't like this. Someone else go in and think about it. Oh, put me a coach. <laughs> is it are we diving too deep into some insecurities? No, here? we're not diving too deep into insecurities. They just don't have a good answer. Okay, so I, I have one. Rather okay. defensive there. Cut that. No, don't cut that at all. <laughs> um, okay. So my biggest problem with asking for help is when someone tells me no. <laughs> there you go. Because not only have you like given up the self-esteem. Like that you had to ask for help in the first place. Just vulnerable. Out like there. you are, you are so vulnerable out there. there. You have finally asked for help, which is like, to be frank, the hardest part about asking for help in the first place. But then the person is like, nope, sorry, can't help you. I'm either too busy or I have something to do, or they just like don't respond to your text or something. And you just look like an idiot. And you're just like, all, all of the social capital I possibly had in asking for help is wasted. And I don't even get the help out of it. Where are the at? 
no. <laughs> <laughs> Christian, we're really going to need names here. We need to be, we need, we need to be inside that room yeah, when wait. you ask for help. <laughs> Am I like on trial here? Like, what is this? <laughs> I guess what really grinds my gears about asking for help is that I feel like there are certain people you can go to asking for advice and like they think they're giving great advice, which is like fair, right? Like everyone likes to think they give good advice, but there are some people that just fundamentally don't understand what you're asking. And you can just like try and try to explain like, I need help in this very specific scenario, but their advice just never really seems to hit the mark. I feel like that's just the most frustrating part for me because like at that point, like what am I supposed to do? You know, like you've given me this advice, like I'm supposed to say thank you and like move on with my day. But like, you really were no help ignore their advice just yeah i was gonna say it's just worthless at that point all right so what grinds my gears most about asking for help you don't get to go again no that was not a real first time this is real i got a good one let me go (laughs) because it's much more nuanced because from my perspective there's a good and a bad outcome and it all hinges on your faith in humanity oh right we're getting heavy deep and real here on episode two. only the deep questions so okay so you ask someone for help and christian you inspired this they say no Everyone sucks. This is awful. The world hates me. I'm going nowhere. Or it's good and you like really Yeah. Does <laughs> anyone else experience that? <laughs> I mean like, okay, so the other side of this was like, so someone does help you and, and you feel really good about people and you're like, I can ask someone for help. Oh, this doesn't make me sound good. <laughs> are you saying are you saying that there are only extremes that I'm Absolutely. Your 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 view of humanity is determined purely based on this one instance. Wow. On that note. <laughs> uh so what you're saying then, Aaron. Is are you gonna segue this? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> do it. Well, do I it. was gonna do segue it. really well until you said, "Are you gonna segue this?" <laughs> no, I want to hear it. Just go for it. Okay. So what you're saying, Aaron, is asking for help a difficult thing to do. Yeah. Some yeah. could say it. Wouldn't it be great if you could ask for help via a television advertisement to donate to certain campaigns or to vote for a certain person? <laughs> I don't think that works. <laughs> I that was a pretty solid. Pivot. Did you get that? Absolutely. Wait, you have to walk me through. I really like. Okay. To not right, so if that. you're a what is a asking what? for votes, asking for voters' help to be elected? That's what an advertisement is. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Okay, I'm there. Are you serious? I really do not understand that. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest this week uh, often is asked for help and asks for help via his digital advertisements. Uh, this week we have Anson K who is a partner at GMO. Aaron, stop shaking your head. I just, I'm sorry. I just, that, that pivot's never going to work for me. <laughs> we need to send out like a Twitter poll after this <laughs> and just funny. see like who, like just like one of those, you know, tweet like yes, no, like okay. did that segue work? For the record, some of our segues are good. Some of our segues are bad. It's true. Some I've of them make some, a lot of sense. I've some of them don't make a lot of sense. No. There, are some, there are reaches there are not. I'm not saying this is the one that fits perfectly, okay? <laughs> our guest this week is Anson K. He is a partner at GMMB. Uh, and if you don't know what GMMB is, it is a advertising consulting firm uh, that does a lot of other things as well. Uh, and that's basically what we want to talk to him about this week is, number one, what is a consultant? Uh, because we didn't really know until we had this conversation with him. Um, so what he did uh, in politics, in 2012, he worked on the Obama reelect campaign as one of the two main uh, advertising firms. And in 2016, he was the main advertising firm for the Hillary campaign. Um, and you're going to hear Anson talk a lot about uh, what it means to create a digital advertisement, some of his favorites, and we're really going to dive deeply into uh, some of the coolest ads he's ever created and how they went from just an idea in his head to on your TV screen. Yeah, what I was going to say is that you have 100%, I guarantee, seen one of his best ads that came out in the 2016 cycle. We're not going to tell you what it is yet because we'll describe it like once we get... Ooh, I just hit the mic. I'm sorry. We'll describe it once we get to the part in the episode, but like you've definitely seen it. It was it was a killer. Did you apologize to the mic or to like yourself <laughs> later for having to edit it? Mostly to the listeners because I'm not editing that. That's too much effort. <laughs> All right. Uh, and with that, uh, Anson K. Thanks for having me. Uh, we are really excited to have you on. Uh, we have a lot of questions for you, and you have a lot of experience uh, to share. 
Uh, so we're going to dive right in. Uh, the first question we have for you um, is one that uh, we've gotten a lot uh, just from our friends um, and telling you that we were telling them we, we were going to have you on the podcast. Um, and this isn't always so clear to people. So could you explain to us first, you know, what a consultant is uh, and what you do at GMMB and what GMMB is like as an entity itself in the political process? Sure. Um, well, let's see. So GMMB is one of the biggest democratic advertising firms in the country. And so a typical um, media consultancy often is like two people who have an office somewhere and all they do are political clients. And then during even numbered years, they're going crazy. And then an odd number of years, they're desperately trying to get more clients. Jimmy B's model is a little different. So we have um, a political practice, but we also have a healthcare practice and a education practice and a global health practice. So it's an effort to have a more sustainable kind of model. So that's kind of GMB. So we were uh, Bill Clinton's media team back in the day for his first run. We were Barack Obama's, one of the two lead advertising agencies for Barack Obama in both of his runs and for Hillary in 2016. And then we do all sorts of other candidates. All I do is political stuff. There are lots of people who do all sorts of different kinds of things. And a consultant, you know, I think a consultant is someone who engages with the campaign in a way that you're probably not going to be able to house in the campaign headquarters. So, you know, you probably don't need, you're probably not going to have a pollster. Now, maybe this, this, honestly, this is all changing right now, right? So you have, back in the day, you had the campaign, which had sort of the campaign manager, the communications director, the field director, and they'd hire a media consultant, a pollster, et cetera. As what we're seeing increasingly is big campaigns have analytics teams on the ground, and they have a sort of a full video team on the ground too. So we'll have to see how this changes over time. But right at this moment, a consultant is someone who brings sort of skills and capabilities that you don't typically house on the ground in headquarters. And could you give us a sense of some of the services that, that JMAB offers its clients? Sure. I mean, depends what kind of a client you are. If you're in the, if you're a political client, we typically engage with the campaigns as early as we can in the process. And so, you know, any ads may not be happening for a year and a half, but we are on the phone all the time with the candidates talking about messaging, debate prep, speech prep, whatever it is, this press call came in, what are we going to do about it? And so we're very focused on sort of message and brand strategy. Um, and, um, as we get closer to election day, then we're kind of ramping up into doing more of the filming. We, we write the scripts, we'll go direct the shoot, we'll bring it back to GMB, we'll cut the spot, and then we'll ship it to stations. So we're kind of, and we're doing the media buy. So it's kind of the whole boat. Great. Mm -hmm. And I asked because you've been discussed as, you know, one of the best democratic ad makers in the business, right? And they, they really put you at the top. So. I, one of the questions that we want to know is what crazy turn of events led you um, from the start of your career toward making ads for such big campaigns? <laughs> yeah, my first um, my first paid political job, I was sitting in an attic in Massachusetts transcribing uh, names and addresses that the candidate who was, this is the governor's candidate who's walking across the state, you know, if he'd meet people, write down their names and then he'd drop them off at home and I was sort of copying them over with addresses out of the phone book. So that was a very glamorous start. <laughs> and then... Um, Gotta start somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. So it was hot in the attic. And, um, you know, after that, you do that. He lost. Uh, I did some other work. I went to law school. Realized about two weeks in that I would be a terrible lawyer. Did it anyway. Got out. Went right back to campaigns. <laughs> um, you know, it happens a lot of times. So like, I, there's a house race that I went to work on after law school. And I went as a field guy and then they never hired a comms director. So I just started doing the work and became the communications director. And then from that moved up in comms jobs. And then I was long before Twitter, Anthony Weiner's chief of staff <laughs> on Capitol Hill, ran his race for mayor in New York City, then went out to Wisconsin, did a governor's race and went to GMMB. So I think a lot of people end up in advertising started out as sort of political communications folks on campaigns because that work is, is pretty transferable. And then you kind of, Figure it out. So I know something that, uh, you know, just in talking to students as well, uh, some people get a little confused about is a lot of people see, you know, a very small disconnect between working at, you know, a consulting firm like GMMB and working at um, inside an actual uh, campaign as like a paid staffer. 
Uh, can you talk to us if there's, you know, any difference in your priorities or if there's any, you know, anything you would do differently uh, on one side being a consultant and something you would do differently if you were in the actual campaign? No. I mean, yes, I can explain it, but no, I don't think there are any difference in priorities. I mean, of course, there's a campaign manager who would like to spend as little money as possible and we need to get paid. So there's that conversation. But our business doesn't work if we don't win and we want to win. And I've been on both sides of it and I've been campaign staffer and I've been um, a consultant and that we're all want to win. The way I used to think about it was um, if you're on the campaign, you're kind of on the front lines and you're, you know, on the ground, you're like the Marines and then the TV guys come in like the Air Force. <laughs> so you both have, you're both engaged in the same endeavor. You may be doing it from different points of entry, but no, I mean, I can't imagine being successful in this business if what you go in thinking, boy, how can I make the most money off these races? Because then you also lose all these races mm -hmm. and then no one would hire you and that would be smart of them. Yeah, you know? makes sense. And just a quick follow up on that because I'm interested. Uh, so, so what would stop someone like yourself or someone um, who has specialties in, in ad writing and cutting and buying from working uh, actually on the campaign staff? Is there an advantage to people like you sort of congregating up in the agency world versus actually being on staff? Or why, why is it shaking out this way? Um, well, a couple of reasons. One is back in the day, and I'm not sure this is as true anymore, the equipment you need to make ads just isn't something that's going to be housed at the campaign and the campaign shouldn't spend money buying it. Mm -hmm. right. So just practically speaking, there's, that's the reason. So uh, we're going to move into uh, one of the first parts of the conversation we want to have with you um, about the Obama 2012 campaign you worked on. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to paint a little scenario of how I thought this went out. Sure. Um, and you're going to tell me about how wrong I am. Okay. You're really uh, just going to crush our dreams here. <laughs> going to look so, forward to that. I'm imagining you're sitting in your office and you just get a phone call one day uh, and it's David Oxrod. He says, hey, uh, Hanson, you know, I want you on this campaign. Uh, so, you know, start making ads and let me know what you come up with. Uh, so how did that moment actually happen? How did you find out that you were going to start working on the Obama 2012 campaign? Well, so I did Obama 2012. Um, I did not do 2008. Mm -hmm. So there was already a pre-existing relationship mm -hmm. because we did do 2008 and I I just got to the firm at that point. Um, gotcha. And, you know, I think that was a circumstance, honestly, where David Axelrod knows Jim Margolis, who's a senior person in our firm. And I think they saw each other on a plane and they started talking and that that kind of one thing led to another. Um, I think the broader question, how do how do these races come in the door? It has to do a lot of the times with relationships and people, you know, and someone that you knew when you worked on the Hill 15 years ago is now the campaign manager for this really cool candidate somewhere else. And you have a relationship with them. You talk on the phone. And I think sometimes there's a misconception that, you know, there are some consultants who are cherry picking races that they want. And I'm sure there are sometimes that kind of thing happens. But a lot of the time it's very much who do you know? And what's that relationship like? And what door does it get you through? And boy, all these different factors came together. So this is really great. We're going to have a chance to work on this really good race. And, um, but you know, that, that isn't always the case, but a lot of times that's just how it happens. Gotcha. So, so when you took on the, the 2012 reelect contract, mm -hmm. what was your role specifically? And what was GMMB's role more broadly in this ecosystem that is a big presence? So GMB was, again, um, one of the two lead advertising agencies, along with David Axelrod's firm, which is called AKPD. And so with the two firms, we're kind of sitting on top of a, a larger pyramid. There are other firms that were brought into work. And we were sort of at the, at the intersection of uh, messaging and research. And you're kind of involved in all that stuff because the most expensive uh, expenditure you're going to make in terms of messaging is going to be in, the, in those TV ads. And you really want your messaging not to be this ad has this message, so let's have an entirely different message in this ad, and let's do something entirely different in the answer to that press call. You want to have kind of a cohesive message that extends across platforms. So, GMB is part of that was part of that big that big messaging operation, and my role was to be one of the people who was talking to all these guys and writing scripts, directing spots, producing ads, and getting them on the air. Um, and that was something that we had a team of people doing and uh, did it for like a year and a half. Great. And what really struck me there was you talked about being at the intersection of research and the actual execution. And mm -hmm. 
I know when we were talking before, uh, in full disclosure, we, we talked to him a bit about this ad, and we found it fascinating, so we wanted to bring the conversation online. Um, but that Iron Dome advertisement you told us about before, mm-hmm. uh, you said it only ran in two markets. Right. And, and I thought this, this fits perfectly well with what you were talking about, about being at the intersection of research and, and knowing who you're talking to and creating the messaging, and then actually going out and executing and buying. So could you take us inside the room of you know, how you came about the decision to make that ad, what it looked like sketching it out, um, and the process of taking it literally from idea to screens? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that ad, I mean, you know, we did a bunch of ads that ran all over the place, and those are kind of cool ads to do, and you get to see your ad up on TV, and that's really fun to do. Um, but part of what the Obama campaigns were in the center of was sort of the analytics revolution that's happened in politics, and our media buyers were, were the media buyers, so we're only doing the creative, we're also purchasing the media. So if the media buyers are really integrated into the analytics uh, program, because you really want your analytics to dictate where you're placing ads and to do it as efficiently as you can so you don't have to spend as much money. Um, and so we got to the point in the campaign where you really could look really at really discrete markets and juxtapose those markets with our targets and say, wait a minute, you know, we can, if we can run this ad over 75% of the country because basically it hits the message that's most resonant with the lion's share of our targets. Um, but we know enough through our analytics about more discrete target groups that if we can find a way to efficiently um, serve them content that's specific to their interests, we should try to do that. And that's something that hadn't been happening um, in presidential campaigns very much uh, up to that point. The, the, there's the typical way you purchase a media buy is you figure out when the newscast is and you buy what's called news adjacencies. And that is put a bunch of ads in the news, you know, because that's where people are interested in politics or watching the news. And that's what we're going to do. That's what Mitt Romney did in 2012. He purchased a lot of news adjacencies. Now, the newscasts know you're going to do that. So they jack up the rates and they shorten their newscasts so they can fit in more advertising. And so what the Romney campaign was doing was spending more money to reach a more monolithic group of targets, whereas we were advertising on things like TV Land and Nickelodeon, places where you wouldn't expect to see political advertising maybe, but where we knew our targets were clustered. They were watching the news, but they were also watching TV Land, and TV Land was a lot cheaper. So that's part of the... So anyway, to get to your question, I don't mean to be... No, that's very helpful context. Okay. So like we knew that there were groups in Pennsylvania and West Palm Beach who were particularly animated by security for Israel. The president had done a really powerful speech about protecting the Iron Dome and protecting folks there. And we realized, look, we have the capacity now to really micro-target. If we run this, these ads will be more efficient, will, will be more powerful with this audience probably than the other ads we have. And now we have the technology that we can just reach those folks. So we decided to do an ad that ran only in two markets. I don't know that you can say the specific impact it had on the electorate there, but assuming we were right in terms of what uh, content was most persuasive to different target audiences, it was the right ad to run. And we were able to do that. So that was was pretty cool to do. Interesting. Uh, So pivoting a little bit, uh, when we... uh, Talk to us about that first decision uh, to release a first negative ad um, in the Obama 2012 campaign hitting Romney. How did you go? How did you guys strategize and decide what the ad was going to be about? Who did you talk to within the campaign um, and within your firm specifically? Um, and how did that ad come to be? Uh, so let's back up before the ad. During the primary, we decided to play in the primary by putting together a video about Mitt Romney flip-flops. And we produced this, and it got a fair amount of coverage. And we were trying to extend the Republican primary by reminding Republican voters of things they wouldn't like about him. Then he wins anyway, but we have hoped to do some damage to him. I think we did some damage to him. And then we get to the general election. And then there's a conversation that happens with David Axelrod and Messina and Benenson and the paid media teams, the research team, what what are we going to do? We're going to do some positive, but we also have to start framing up our opponent. And there, do you do, he's a vulture capitalist, a person who's made his money kind of screwing over vulnerable populations. It's powerful. Is that what you do? Do you keep going with flip-flops? You know, that really works for Republicans. 
On the other hand, if you say he's a flip-flopper, are you also then not pinning the more conservative positions he's taken on? Are you giving people reason to think, oh, maybe he's not that bad? Or, you know, we found in our research was that people kind of thought he had the secret sauce on the economy, like this business guy, he really is going to be able to turn the economy around. Do you go straight at that core strength? And what would be the most convincing way to do that? And we concluded that, yeah, let's make an investment in undermining the thing that is central to the sale he's trying to complete, which is this guy understands the economy like no one else. And what we found was going through the research I remember is going through, we have these thousands of pages of research books. There was this Boston Globe op-ed that, um, and one of the quotes in it was that it was like the worst economy in the country under Mitt Romney. And he thought, boy, you could build a spot around that. And so that's sort of how, you know, we, I wrote up a spot that turned into the first negative we ran that was trying to really undermine his credentials as an economic wizard. Walk us through that decision um, to ultimately land with the secret sauce. In, mm-hmm. Bring us inside that room. Who was part of that conversation? How did that decision ultimately get made? Mm-hmm. Um, well, there, as I, there was sort of the research team that was led by Joel Benenson, right? There was David Seamus, who was a, a big thinker on the campaign. Right. There was a paid media operation, which was GMB and AKPD and the other firms we had. And usually, in, in something like that, Axelrod would kind of have the final, there'd be a lot of discussion, but he was sort of the person who was piloting the ship. And so, I don't know, I don't, how, much, how many conference calls do you want in college? You ever on a conference call? Conference calls are the bane. <laughs> More than you'd think. <laughs> right? So there are these conference calls that happen. You're not probably all sitting, you'll go to the HQ and be in meetings. But a lot of this stuff has happened on conference call, and there's a conference call in which, first, the thing is, okay, here are the buckets we're thinking about here, the areas the research suggests we should dig into. Let's assign scripts to different firms. Okay, you guys go back and write stuff. Then you come back with the scripts. Those are reviewed by everybody. And then you kind of winnow it down to the ones that feel like, okay, these feel like they're the place. Let's produce some of these. Then you go back and produce three or four or two or whatever it is. Come back. They're probably triads or, or focus groups where you're getting engaging people's reaction to them. But ultimately... You look at those results, you go by your gut, and you decide this is the one that really most effectively does what we need to do. So after getting hired and brought onto the campaign, you, you then still have to, you, it's still like a, a jungle out there between the agencies to see which uh, ad actually ultimately goes to to the screen. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think there are certainly campaigns where that has turned poisonous. We've been fortunate uh, on Obama and on Hillary that we had good relationships with the other firms and pretty much we're all on the same page. But yeah, I mean, there is certainly the competition continues through the campaign. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back with Anson Kay. This week's political fun fact uh, comes to you from President Ronald Reagan, uh, the media guru that he was. In 1984, during a radio broadcast, uh, was asked to speak into the microphone for a sound check. And this is understandable. We do this a lot on Fly on the Wall. We ask our guests to do a quick sound check, uh, say some things. Most of the time, it's gibberish. But we edited it out. Yes, we edited it out. The problem was, uh, jokingly, uh, President Reagan said, My fellow Americans, I'm pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. A recording of his statement was then leaked, (laughs) Uh, which is, oh man. At which point uh, the Soviet Union and their forces were briefly put on alert. This very easily could have been an unfun fact. That could have been really bad. Yeah, this would have not been a fun fact if we went to war. (laughs) Probably wouldn't be here. No, probably not. No, we would have eaten them. So basically the point of this Uh, and we're going to learn later, is to always edit out these things. (laughs) Always edit it out. Delete the recording. Like, when you listen to what we actually put online, that has been cut and doctored and, like, manicured in such a way that you will never hear, for the most part, you'll never hear. Hopefully not this. The really stupid things that we said. Definitely, hopefully not this. So moving on a little bit, because uh, you touched on this a touch, uh, 
but you talked a little bit about the Hillary 2016 campaign right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd love to know, uh, we know you worked on it, but could you tell our audience, you know, what was your role in that campaign? Um, and how is that any different from your role in the 2012 campaign? Okay, sure. So GMMB in 2016, we were the lead agency for Hillary. Um, we were the co-lead for, for President Obama. We were the lead for Hillary. Um, and I was the person who was responsible for getting our advertising out the door. So um, that means having a team of people who were concepting spots and writing scripts and producing. My partner, Jim Margolis, uh, who was in, is the first M in GMMB, <laughs> uh, he was one of her senior advisors. He's involved in a whole lot of other stuff. My channel was more narrowly in the messaging and media space and making sure that GMMB, we were producing the best ads that we could and getting them out the door. Great. Um, and talk to us a little bit about, uh, we, I know we just dove into conference calls and, and all mm-hmm. these meetings, but can you contrast a little bit, um, you know, what it was like to be uh, on these conference calls with um, Obama folks in 2012 and and. Uh, Hillary's folks in 2016. I know technology has changed and shifted, and yeah. Um, yeah, the role as we're talking about is evolving for political consultants. Could you just you know tell us you know how your experience is a little bit different in those campaigns? Sure. One thing I'd like to touch on is that in 2012, the music that you listened to before the conference call was very much <laughs> like elevator music, and so and if you aren't enough, you hear the same music over and over again. Right. In 2016, someone had the brilliant idea. I don't know if you've encountered this where they would have someone like sing a song. It would be like a recorded song that's supposed to be music, but then if you listen to lyrics, it's about how hard it is to wait for a conference call to begin. (laughs) I've never heard that in my life. Right, so it is amusing for the first four seconds, and then when you hear that song the thousandth time, Uh, it's it's like it's mocking you. You know, I mean, look, in 2012, uh, we were working with a campaign that had a sitting president, and people had all gone through most for the most part gone through a war four years earlier and um and there i think if you're the president for four years you kind of have your lines of authority kind of get smashed out i mean you get you got to know who's doing what and um and uh i think it was really crucial for that operation that david oxerod kind of had a big role in 08 and continued to have that in 2012 and his vision was really important i mean here's a brilliant guy who has a terrific manner um and is a leader and can sort of say all right guys this is great really appreciate this and this is the way you should go um i think when you aren't working with incumbents sometimes that process can be a little more freewheeling and i think they were really terrific and committed people who worked incredibly hard for hillary it was a bigger operation and so sometimes that meant there was the conference call was longer or involved more parties and that can have the benefit of having more ideas and it can also have the detriment of it kind of feeling bigger and taking longer and trying to hash through stuff. So, uh, we know you cut an ad in 2016, uh, you know, a very powerful ad that really resonated with a lot of people. Um, the mirrors ad I'm talking about. Uh, so can you explain to us a little bit about, um, what that ad, how you originally came up with the ad and then what it turned out to be and how you went from that process of, you know, just an idea inside your head, uh, to actually getting it on, you know, to advisors and then to the actual TV screens where millions of people saw it. Yeah, so that ad, um, uh, again, there was a conference call I was on. It was, uh, <laughs> a lot it, of conference well, calls in these Oh campaigns. my gosh, it really is. <laughs> you should figure out how to monetize that for like Georgetown and you guys would sort of have buildings <laughs> named after you. <laughs> um, I was on a conference call. It was a Saturday. It was the middle of the day. My kids were out. You know, the, it's dark. You know, you're kind of you know, on another conference call. You're just trying to gear up for that. And um, um, and uh, part of that, the process we were engaged in then was, you know, it, obviously we're now, whereas maybe earlier in the campaign you think, oh, it's going to be Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, but obviously Donald <laughs> Trump has emerged as the opponent. And so you're kind of running against this howler monkey. I mean, he was running for president. It's going to crazy kind of thing that you didn't really expect so what is it that you do to um take on a guy like that and what we found in our research was that um using his words against him was the most effective thing to do with our persuadable audience and um so you know there are only so many ways to do that so you have to think what is the most powerful way to do this without we don't want to burn people out i want to keep it fresh and powerful and um I was sitting on this conference call and there's a mirror in my 
dining room, which is where I was sitting, and I have two daughters, and I was, you know, we're talking, and this is, you know, everyone's on this call. There's all the media team, there's the pollsters, the paid media director, Robbie Mook may have been on it, you know. Um, and um, uh, I was thinking, you know, the idea that my daughters would have a guy like this be their president was so depressing. And you spend so much time when you're a parent, I assume I'm not looking at any parents, but you know, if you ever have the good fortune of having a daughter, one of the things that you're going to think a lot about, I imagine is their self-esteem because this is such a big deal. I was looking in the mirror. It's like when I look in the mirror and hear this guy, what do they think about themselves? And then that was, Oh, well, that's an idea. You know, just getting a little bit more into the process of this, uh, right after this call, what did you immediately do to work towards this advertisement? Yeah, so I had this idea, so then I sat down at the call and I wrote a script. And um, that takes a while. You have to sort of think it through a few different times and stuff. Then I sort of shared it with some of my colleagues at GM&B, and then we sort of went up the chain at the campaign and said, hey, this, I called Oren, who was the paid media. I think this is the thing we'd like to go shoot. And he's like, oh, great, let's go do that. Then we have a full production house at GM&B, so I go talk with our production people and say, hey, I think we're going to do a shoot. We should do it as soon as we can. We need to find a house to film in. We need to find girls to film in it. I mean, there need to be mirrors in this house. We need to probably prop the house, which means find stuff to make each room look sufficiently different that you, you're not thinking, oh boy, there's 12 girls all in one house. <laughs> we need to find a, a DP, which is uh, the person operating the camera. And there are some who are really good and there are some who, are, who aren't as good. So we need to find one of these three or four guys to do it. Are they available on this day? And you kind of get a producer on, engaged. You work with the campaign to find the people and then you show up on the given day and you then you have to move through each of the scenes. This was a spot that was unusual because no one that we're filming was saying anything. So it was really just finding moments where girls were looking at themselves in the mirror and that you felt like, boy, that is going to work with Trump saying what he's saying or it's not and get enough takes. Then we have an edit, full edit suite. So you bring all that footage back and you sit with an editor and you go through all the stuff. And the first time you put it together, it doesn't feel like it's working. So you go back and then you and then you end up finally with something that feels right, which you then send around the campaign. They have edits, so they don't. It gets into the queue because we're making ads often that are going to have to fit into a broader program. Like either we're going to get ahead of a different ad that was planned or we're going to fit it into a particular sequence. And then at some point you ship it and there it goes. It's incredible to see, you know, an ad just go from something in your head to something that, you know, millions of people saw on television. So this is a great story to hear from the person who actually created it. You're listening to Fly on the Wall, and we'll be right back with more Anson K. Our Politicos as Real People for this week comes from Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio. This is, you know, of the many Politicos as Real People that we've done, this is one of my favorites. So if you're a baseball fan, you know that the Cleveland Indians have been on a historic winning streak, winning how many games at this point, Christian? Uh, They're at 22 at the recording of this podcast. 22 at the recording of this podcast. So Senator Brown has some beef to pick with the MLB commissioner, Rob Manfred, actually writing him a letter on his Senate letterhead addressed to Mr. Manfred, um, which is very long and has lots of feeling in it, you can tell. It's like essentially, official. <laughs> very official, very official, very emotional. Essentially arguing that the Indians actually hold the longest winning streak in baseball because the questionable current longest winning streak comes from the Giants back in 1916 where the rules were that a tie technically did not count as a loss. So in this whole long 26-game winning streak that the Giants had back in 1916, they tied, uh, and Senator Brown's argument is that that does not count. He clearly demonstrates a wide depth of baseball knowledge here and clearly a passion for making that known. So thank you for being our Politico as real people this week, Senator Brown. I like to think he stays up like deep into the night thinking about this. Like there are so it. many, there are so many things that he could be handling as like a United States senator. And but I hey, like, the, win- the Indians, I, Indians, the Indians, <laughs> the Indians. And I like to think that like d- in the middle of the night, you know, he's not thinking about you know 
like tax reform, immigration reform, he's thinking about how can I make sure the Indians have the best winning streak in baseball. Hey, you know what, Christian? Politicians are real people. See, here's my thought. Okay. And I might be a little, (laughs) I know, I'm not really into baseball, so I might be a little (laughs) cynical here, but like, is there any part of you that thinks that this is a little bit of a political jab? No! What are you talking about? The Windians are important. I don't know, man. It, it seems like America's it pastime. It seems like a pretty easy play to the base. Do you think Kamala Harris isn't losing sleep over the Dodgers' losing streak right now? I don't now? think at all. Uh, I'm sorry. The Dodgers broke their losing okay, streak. Fine. I just want to be clear. They were on a losing streak. Mm. Yeah, they did. Still the best record in baseball. Mm. I don't know how. They're good. Yeah, well. Back to Anson. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to move on to a segment we're calling uh, Student Hot Take um, with hopefully some special effects that Aaron will put in at some point. I'm very good like with like sound effects wow. in post-production. So I can't wait to hear them. When you listen, yeah, you'll hear some cool okay. like... So, uh, <laughs> TBD. So this hot take... By comes... the way, was that the sound effect? Because that was really we're gonna good. We're going to find that. We're that, find that. That, that one will get edited down. I we'll get a real one. Okay, good. We actually, you know, that's we just outsource sound effects to our friends. <laughs> <laughs> Have them stand by mic all night. <laughs> so uh, this hot take comes from our friend Cece, uh, who also sits on the Geopolitics Student Advisory Board. Um, and we asked her the question, uh, what is more influential to voters, uh, paid media or earned media? Uh, and she's going to give you her thoughts, um, and then we'd love for you to respond with whether uh, CC's in the right place or if CC's totally wrong. The most important part is who is driving the narrative. So paid coverage um, on behalf of a campaign is able to be very targeted in terms of content and message um, sent to a very specific audience to, tar- um, to influence those um, voters. Earned media, on the other hand, is able to have uh, more of a human element to it. If it's something shared from friends and family members or something that you've heard from a trusted newscaster, your regular newscaster on TV, um, there's a more human, empathetic element to what you're hearing. And that might have a stronger influence on you than something on behalf of the campaign itself. So paid media is able to have a more targeted, specific influence in terms of what the campaign is uh, specifically trying to do. Um but earned media is able to have a much larger reach, though it's not necessarily the specific message that the campaign is trying to get across. Well, I think we'd all agree, first of all, that any suggestion that anything other than an ad would have a profound impact is an outrage. <laughs> <laughs> Figured you'd say something along those lines. Well, I don't know. You know, I think I, I have been a comms director on campaigns and also done ads. And I think... Um, it is typically, and I think you got to set aside Trump for a minute, but I think on a typical political campaign, it is such a narrow range of people who actually are consuming earned media about the campaign that your reach, I would suggest to you, is usually more limited. Now, with social media and with the, the way we've seen partisan news sites kind of emerge as influencers, that can well be changing, but... Um, I would say that there still is a narrower range of people you're reaching with that kind of coverage than you can with a TV ad. That's number one. Number two is most earned media coverage isn't going to make an emotional connection, right? Most earned media coverage is you get a line in a story about something like a debate that no one really cares about, and maybe they're going to read to see your quote or they're not. And as a person who did years of work for earned media, I love every press secretary in the world and it's God's work. But you work incredibly hard to get something into a, a platform, which is the media outlet, that is very unlikely to, to deliver the message you need to actually move voters in a way that people are going to see. So I think that's the limitation of earned media. Now, we're in an environment now where earned media has become kind of weaponized. And so you have Republican media and Democratic media and liberal conservative and through social media and how polarized our electorate is, that the power of that stuff is is going up among base groups, I think. Um, but I think you'd find if you ran like a campaign, sort of just an earned media political campaign, it'd be very hard to move numbers. If you run good paid media, I still think you can. Gotcha. And that makes a lot of sense. And 
I think something that ties in well with this, uh, an article we came across in Politico that you were quoted in, you talk about the importance of making a gut level connection uh, if you're a candidate with um, your voters. And I'm wondering, is it, are you able to do that better in those real moments, the authentic moments that come out of earned media? Uh, or is it better to get very specific, very um, manicured, very um, set messaging out of paid? Which do you think is better to listening, that gut level connection that, that moves voters? I'm not sure it's a it's a as an either or question. I mean, I think there are some very powerful ads that um, that come out of earned media that are just the sort of found footage that says something undeniably true about the person, whether it's positive or negative. Those are very powerful ads. I think there are other ads that aren't that way, but that connect in an in an emotional way with the viewer, and that it has to be authentic enough for someone to pay attention to it, but they can have real emotional connection too. So I don't think it's neither or, I think it's more looking across your the potential canvases and seeing what is the thing that is gonna be most evocative, what is the thing that's gonna make the most immediate connection to voters, what's gonna have a gut level emotional connection rather than trying to make a rational argument. That's what I'd say. I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I'm not one to disagree with you on this one. <laughs> yeah. I knew you guys were really smart when I came in. Yeah. <laughs> Take your word for it. <laughs> so uh, with that, do you want to move on? Uh, this is where we'll cue our second sound effect, <laughs> and we will jump into the lightning round. Okay. <laughs> now, can I ask you, is the lightning round the fact you're going to ask the question very quickly, or you're hoping I'll answer the right Yeah. <laughs> we just sort of, we run with it, yeah. We, yeah. we typically say you have like 20, 30 seconds with each question. Or we're gonna spit another one. I think so. it's very unlikely this is gonna be successful, but let's give it a shot. Let's try. Let's okay. let's do our best. Okay. So first question we have for you: What's more fun to create, positive or negative ads? Negative. Great. I have to cast why, please. Yep. Why? Uh, <laughs> let's break the lightning round rules immediately. <laughs> I like. I need to know. I mean, look, I, I am a person who got into politics because I would like to be engaging in philosophical fistfights with conservatives. Um, that's where I come from. Um, I really disagree with sort of most of the principles of conservatism and punching someone in the mouth with a negative ad feels good. What is your favorite all-time political ad? Not one that you made. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, those are all great. <laughs> well, now that's, a, that's an excellent question. Okay, so I'm going to take, I may take a little longer than you want me to. There was this ad uh, of, and you may have seen this, of this guy who was running for like mayor of Minneapolis where he came walking out of a pond only in a Speedo, like carrying a bottle of beer. And it was insane. <laughs> And I thought, I shouldn't swear on this podcast, right? You can. You go for it. We can't. You can't. I see. Well, it's like, <laughs> this dude is insane. And it was so much, it was fun to watch. Now, I don't know if that's my favorite ad. Um, let's see, what my favorite ad? I don't know if I have a favorite ad, you know? I mean, I think that's, that... That seems surprising for an ad maker. Well, I guess so, except when you are citizen of doing the nuts and bolts of the ads all the time, it kind of... Um, okay, question number three. How has your life improved since being named to the Politico Power List? Oh my gosh, let me tell you. <laughs> it is such a change. First of all, the paparazzi is difficult for me. Um, they just swarm outside the GMM. I mean, you just can't, morning. right, I'm sure they're just clustered outside the door. I'm sure, uh, right at the front gates. I would say that, uh, well, I was delighted to be named the list. It has changed my life, not a whit. <laughs> Love it. Great. All right, and this is the one we're actually going to keep you to on time because we want to see your, we want to test your abilities here. In the, yeah, I got the stopwatch here. In, <laughs> in 30 seconds, pitch us an ad that we can use for Fly on the Wall. For Fly on the Wall? Our podcast. How do we how do we reach our audience? Well, listen, guys. I think this is what you should sell. This is the whole this is the whole show, you two. And um, it's engaging, and it's fun, and it's real, and you and you respect your audience. I would be you guys just talking about this stuff. That's what I would do. It's like us on the couch, just like... Sitting right here or something. I don't know. Just well, I would say to you, you know, I mean, with the amount of distrust there is for the media right now, I think getting more and more basic in terms of what our news sources are and having a news source that is obviously honest and respecting you is actually going to be something important. And I think that that is that's the vibe I get from this experience. That you guys are honest and you respect your audience. I don't know how that is conveyed as I'm sitting here, but I think that would be what the brand is that I would start with. Mm -hmm. Honest and respecting your audience and then figuring out you want to go, well, what's the most creative, interesting way to convey that? But the, anyway, I would start with that. 
Love it. Well, we will add that to our brand there. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, if someone wants to send us donations, maybe we can hire a team MP yeah, to that's true. cut us an ad. You will never spend a better dollar. <laughs> <laughs> Sponsored by GMM. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I think we're wrapping up here. But Nancy K, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode with Anson K. We really enjoyed having him on. I love the conversation. What'd you guys think? Yeah, I thought it was a really great conversation. Listening to just how these advertisements go from just an idea in someone's head to on a TV screen. And like advertisements I saw in 2016 that I thought were really powerful. We, it was great to talk to the person who created them. Yeah, really fascinating to get that far behind the scenes. Yeah, and we're very generous. Uh, he was very generous with his time. We're very lucky that he came in uh, all the way from his office uh, to come talk to us. So. Big shout out to Anson. Yeah. yeah. Um, so keep listening out. Next week, we're going to have a really great guest as well. Ooh, you're um, going to love next week's episode. Next week's going to be great. It's going to be so great. <laughs> um, we're definitely, super excited. Definitely listen in. Uh, all, as always, uh, follow us on social media. At, at Fly on the Wall Pod. <laughs> <laughs> or if you get like super excited to get in touch with us, Fly on the Wall Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, give us feedback. We always love hearing from our, our, our fans. We yeah, please please send us emails. Um, and definitely let us know what you guys think. We actually got our first fan mail. We did get our first fan mail. It was so I, exciting. I wasn't gonna bring this up because I wanted to make it seem like people email us. All well, the I mean, time. we we, nope, we get we a get... lot of like in person feedback, but this is our first actual written feedback from a fan who also wants to get involved with the podcast. So if you've been hesitant to pivot, like, yeah, oh, we are yeah, going yeah. to have uh, an actual tangible opportunity. To get involved, I know we've been teasing this for a while, but it's coming in the next two weeks. I promise you that. Uh, so please stay tuned for that. And thanks so much, Grace, for reaching out to us. Yeah, and if you've been hesitant or shy about shooting us an email in the past, not that anyone has, because we're not that cool with people. But like, okay, now- speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Actually, Christian's pretty cool. He's in a full suit right now. Yeah, so. someone take a picture. <laughs> really nice look. Um, I'm gonna be posting on Instagram right after this. Oh, good. Oh, sweet. Oh, yeah. So now we actually get email. So like, don't feel intimidated. You can totally yeah, you, you won't be the first person. Yeah, is what we're saying. You'll be the second mm. or third. Well, on that note, <laughs> subscribe to the pod, shoot us a message, and we'll talk to you uh, next Sunday. Have a great week, guys. All right, Flashbowl, everyone. If we were to get Fly on the Wall merchandise, which do you think oh, yeah. would be the first? To, which would you be interested? Which this be legit might turn into a Twitter poll. It could. We have right now. We're brainstorming ideas for pens, T-shirts, ceramic mugs, uh, water okay. bottles. For the and record, stickers. I like you said ceramic mugs. Mugs sassily. Yeah, like, it sounded weird. Like they're mugs. Yeah. Who doesn't like a mug? I'm do definitely not coffee? trying to. Aaron, influence. how frequently do you drink coffee? You tell me. You live with me. every day. Yeah. How often do you use a ceramic mug? Barely. Every day. I only use my Mr. President mugs iconically. There you go. Well, Fly on the Wall can replace your Mr. President mug. If there's like one fact you needed to know about Aaron just to like get his entire personality, <laughs> it's the fact that he has a mug <laughs> that says Mr. President. <laughs> that's it. That's all you need to know. Right. If this is your first episode, <laughs> that's Aaron Bennett. Okay, here's the thing. I didn't buy it for myself. It was a gift. Right. But someone felt that you needed that. Yes. That's all I needed to hear. <laughs>